Hello, and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores controversial, challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, Dr. Al Atkins, a child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, in for Dr. Aaron Parks, not joining us tonight. I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. Hey, Tosh. Hi. We'd also like to welcome the newest member of our team, future physician, Yasmin Dakama, helping us make our show happen. Hello, Yaz. Hello. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, Riverside, or UCR School of Medicine. On today's show, we are thrilled to have with us Dr. Daniel Carlat. Danny is the founder of Carlat Publishing, an associate clinical professor at Tufts Psychiatry and chair of psychiatry at Melrose Wakefield Hospital. After medical school at UCSF, he trained at Harvard's Mass General Hospital, where he was chief resident of inpatient psychiatry. His textbook, The Psychiatric Interview, was selected as one of the top recommended psychiatric books for small medical libraries. Dr. Carlat founded Carlat Publishing in 2012 and its flagship publication, The Carlat Psychiatry Report, for which he is editor-in-chief. This publication has become one of the most well-respected newsletters in the field. It is quoted, quoted widely in the national media. His blog, The Carlat Psychiatry Blog, is consistently ranked on the top 10 most influential health blogs. He also writes for Psychology Today, Psychiatric Times, and general audience publications. His article for the New York Times Magazine, called Dr. Drug Rep, was selected for Harper Perennial's Best Science Writing 2008 Anthology. Another publication of the Carlat family of publishing is the Carlat Report podcast, which I can say happens to be my personal favorite podcast. We see Carlat Publishing as inspiring for its lacking conflicts of interest, namely not receiving any funding from the farm industry, a rarity in Western medical publication. We asked Danny for a fun fact, and he mentioned, ironically, that his grandfather, Sam Carlat, was once a pharmaceutical salesman and went on to start his own drug company. Danny, tell us about Effexor, its marketing, its methodology. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to, and uh, I probably should preface it by um, explaining to our audience why I would be so obsessed with Effexor. Um, I did uh, spend a year in 2002 giving promotional talks before I started Carlat Publishing, before I quit, quit giving promotional talks. Uh, and so I spent a year giving promotional talks, you know, from the standpoint of the, this is the slide deck that the company uh, wanted me to use in order to convince doctors that I was speaking to to, to prescribe more of it. And uh, this is around, you know, I, I don't know exactly when Effexor was introduced, I think around 2000 or 2001 or so. But um, at that time, Wyeth had the idea that they could uh, they could convince doctors that Effexor was actually more effective than the SSRIs uh, that were also being introduced um, or that had been introduced back in 1989, 1990. And by that time, there were three or four or five SSRIs that were on the market. So they really wanted to capture that market. Um, so what they what they did is they um, uh, they asked uh, Dr. Michael Thace, uh, who's a um, 
one of the major researchers in the field uh, back then and still today to do a study looking at pretty much all the data that they had on patients who had been uh, in randomized controlled trials of Effexor. And those randomized controlled trials, they basically they um, assigned patients randomly to either Effexor, SSRIs, or placebo. And so the main study that came out at that time said that showed that the remission rate on Effexor was 45%. The remission rate on SSRIs was about 35%. And the remission rate on placebo was 25%. And if true, that would be pretty huge news in a field where we were accustomed to thinking all antidepressants are basically created equal. The only reason to prescribe one over the other is side effects or patient preference. So that was really the main piece of data that I had to work with as a promotional speaker and what I, and what I thought a lot about. Now, when I think about um, how we as consumers of the psychiatric literature, and I'm talking about psychiatrists, medical students, residents, you know, in order to learn our stuff, we have to read journal articles and we have to understand the methodology. I think about things like the outcome variable. So um, companies have to choose a certain outcome variable, um, a result. And in this case, they chose remission rate. And at that time, remission rate was not the standard outcome variable. The standard outcome variable was response rate. And, you know, this is getting really into some of the weeds of this, but it's important. I think this is just a good case study to sort of learn some ways of thinking about other drugs that you may be learning about. So uh, the difference between response rate and remission rate is that response rate just means a 50% improvement in what was used at that point called the Hamilton depression scale. Uh, and the remission rate is defined as a cutoff, a very low cutoff point on that at that Hamilton depression scale, usually below eight or seven or eight. So the um, the interesting thing is that Wyeth chose remission rate as opposed to response rate. And I remember thinking very skeptically, you know, why would they have chosen that over the other? And why weren't we getting uh, information about the differential res responses to Effexor and SSRIs with the response rate versus the remission rate? And it took a while for that data to come out, but you know, about 10 years later, uh, in 2010, there was a very, very large meta-analysis done of all the data that was published up to that point. And they realized and they found at that point that there really was no difference in response or remission rates between Effexor SSRIs, between Effexor SSRIs. They're both better than placebo, but there really was no uh, when you looked at the totality of the data, there really was no difference. Uh, and well, let, let me stop there because I I don't want to barrage you with too much sort of fine grain detail. I want to hear if you have any particular questions first. No, that was absolutely excellent. I uh, was reflecting on how you're bringing up information you learned at one point, and then 10 years later, you see an outcome. And something I was reflecting on is how... I think about the medications and what we know now and how in the future that'll likely change. And I wonder how, as a person who is learning about medicine and possibly one day will be prescribing medications, 
how you sit with that, knowing that some of these outcomes might change in the future. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really important to look at that very thing because uh, right now, the latest antidepressants that we're very excited about are things like uh, ketamine infusions or, S or S-ketamine nasal spray or uh, psilocybin or um, MDMA, et cetera. Uh, and it really helps to look back at history to not have to repeat the mistakes of the past mm. by realizing that people were very, very excited about Effexor. And it was only later that they found out that because of the way these studies were originally designed, they were somewhat, they deceived us in various ways. I'm not saying that the pharmaceutical companies were being overtly deceptive. At times they were, but we had to wait many years before more studies were done to really learn the truth. And I'm certainly concerned that we're going to have, we're going to learn a lot more about ketamine and psilocybin in 10 years that may not, that may very much temper our enthusiasm now. Those are particularly interesting ones because there's been such a long, you know, they were already, well, some of them were already studied uh, in the past and there's been sort of a, a cult following, hoping for their uh, coming to to market or at least legalization. And, you know, it, there's this described kind of like enthusiasm that goes along with their use that many of the people researching them seem to have that's almost like religious in its level of fervor. And so that adds to all of this stuff on top of, you know, some of these products will likely be quite profitable. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see and and I do think they're promising, but it, it'll be interesting. I mean, I think the enthusiasm right now is um, maybe should raise some eyebrows. Well, there was definitely a religious fervor back in the early 2000s to prescribe Effexor as the first line antidepressant. And it took a while for us to realize that it was difficult to prescribe, that there was a lot of nausea and other side effects, including hypertension and that there was a terrible discontinuation syndrome. And I think now it, you would, it would be the rare psychiatrist who would say that they would prescribe Effexor over most antidepressants. Even as a second line, most would pres prescribe Cymbalta uh, because it also has the dual reuptake inhibition, but it has uh, fewer side effects and less discontinuation. That's so funny. That The, <laughs> the idea that, that, you know, like a... Um, a teenager who has the, the brand new clothes and they can't possibly imagine that those clothes will ever go out of fashion and that they might look ridiculous later. It's equally hard for me to imagine effects are being exciting in the way that yeah. psychedelics are currently exciting to people. It's like impossible to imagine mm -hmm. effects are being sexy. And, and, yeah, yeah. And yet, yeah, yeah. Young we are. And and I you mentioned Cymbalta. I think that's a nice transition. Um, let's hear you talk a little bit about um, duloxetine. Yeah, so duloxetine um, is is interesting in my personal experience because um, so I had um, launched my newsletter in early two thousand three, and uh, in uh, and that was around when Cymbalta was just being released. It, it may have been, I think it was starting to get advertised in 2003, 2004. It may have been actually released uh, in 2004, 2005. But um, 
So I remember, you know, looking at the data, being very skeptical about certain things I saw in the data. And I published an article in the Carlin Psychiatry Report in January 2004, and I called it, uh, the title of the, the article was Cymbalta, Double the Reuptake, Triple the Hype. And in that article, I went through, um, uh, and again, uh, you know, we talked about outcome, how um, messing around with outcome variables can make your drug look better. And to me, Cymbalta was an absolutely textbook example of that. So uh, when I looked at the studies comparing Cymbalta with placebo, uh, whereas in the past you would see outcome variables in terms of a response rate or a remission rate, as in effect, so remission, remission rate was already out by that time. Cymbalta uh, and Eli Lilly was talking about the probability of response and the probability of remission. And so in these studies, they were saying the probability of response with patients put on Cymbalta was 60 to 65%, which is huge. And the probability of remission was 55%, which was also huge. And so, um, you know, I, I drilled down into the data. I realized that the reason that they were using this very odd language was that the, um, the scientists uh, that were working for Lilly actually had developed, they hadn't invented, and it's important to clarify that because later I heard from the, their attorneys, but um, they had developed or sort of refined a statistical method in their own way. So there was a sort of Eli Lilly version of the statistical method that they pioneered oh. and they used for the first time or one of the first times in these studies of Cymbalta. And so I simply pointed this out, you know, it was, um, it was a, uh, you know, mostly a statistical article. And I pointed out that I was very skeptical of these home, I called it homegrown statistics from Eli Lilly. And um, so the way this came back to bite me was that about a month or two later, um, Eli Lilly, one of Eli Lilly's attorney uh, faxed a complaint letter to the Massachusetts Medical Society, which was uh, involved in uh, allowing me to to get to award accredited CME, and um, they complained that the article that I had written was biased and inaccurate and unfairly attacked Lilly's scientific credibility, and I was freaking out uh, because mm -hmm. the Mass Med Society immediately told me I could no longer offer any CME while they investigated this. Ooh. It's really scary for anybody to get uh, a letter from a Fortune 500 or Fortune. I don't know, 150 company lawyer. Oh my gosh. Uh, so I had to kind of cease and desist for a little while while we figured all this out. So we're going to leave y'all on a clencher for just one moment. Um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. We're currently talking to Dr. Danny Carlat about um, interactions with lawyers from Eli Lilly. <laughs> So back to you. So, um, you know, after receiving this letter and reading it, um, I uh, I was worried that, that I would get sued, first of all, uh, but I never got sued. Uh, so what I did is I asked Lily to provide me with more information. Basically, I invited them to write a letter to the editor, if you will, uh, which they did. And they sent me. Uh, actually, a very well-written and interesting and long 
uh, letter uh, sort of providing their side of the issue uh, and um, explaining why they thought that I was being unfair. And I published that on my website and I, I, I wrote a response to their letter. So it really became a way of, of um, introducing the conversation about statistics and about how drug companies might use statistics to influence how their drugs are perceived by the prescribing public. And in the end, I think it worked out pretty well. In fact, I ended up using that episode in marketing. <laughs> no, no news, right? No news is bad news. And it really did help my, my, my uh, subs subscription base because at that point I was, um, you know, didn't have that many subscribers. So it was sort of a, a good, good way to attract people to, to the uh, journal. Uh, can I ask you, Danny, do you have some top tips that you give your residents um, or your colleagues, maybe top five tips on um, things to look out for to critically appraise a study? Yeah. Um, so just based on a lot of this is based on my experience, having read a lot of studies over the years uh, and seeing how uh, very subtle, seemingly subtle adjustments in the methodology of, this, of a study can can pay big dividends for a company that's trying to to push their product. Uh, so one of the things I do is that most of these studies are comparative trials, right? I mean, that's really the only way to show that your drug is effective. It has to be compared to something, whether that something is a placebo or an, an active medication. Uh, you, you really have to do that in order to convince uh, the FDA that it's effective in order to get approval. Uh, so one thing to do is to look at dosing differences. So when you choose to uh, compare your drug with another company's drug, um, you have a choice in your methods to choose the dosing. And one of the, going back to Cymbalta, one of the early, early trials of Cymbalta one of the early head-to-head -head trials of Cymbalta, uh, purported to show that it was significantly more effective than Paxil or Prozac. Again, these were the days when the big fight uh, in, in antidepressants was between the SNRIs and the SSRIs. Uh, so in those studies, um, indeed, Cymbalta did look like it was better, but they were using a dose of 120 milligrams of Cymbalta, uh, and they were comparing it to only 20 milligrams of Paxil and Prozac. And really what you should, 120 is the maximum FDA recommended dose of Cymbalta, I think. Yeah, I believe it is. Uh, and um, uh, and so they should have been comparing it to, you know, something like 40 milligrams. And I'm sure if they had, there would have been no difference at all. Um, so looking, that's one of the things, looking at dosing. Right. Um, and then a kind of a corollary of that is mm -hmm. looking at uh, dosing of the comparative of the the right of your rival agent uh often the rival agent will be dosed in order to cause them to have more side effects than your medication mm. uh, so it's like about tolerability and and lexapro i think is a good example of this i mean we think of lexapro still i think is the more tolerable ssri uh and the, the reason we think that i mean maybe it is slightly more tolerable um it's always hard to, it's hard to know the truth but um, when Lexapro first started to do its studies, it, it emphasized tolerability, 
And the reason they were able to show that was that they were comparing Lexapro at 10, to, at 10 milligrams or 20 milligrams as opposed to Celexa 40 milligrams, but starting at 40 milligrams. So imagine starting a patient on 40 milligrams of Celexa. You're not, those patients are, it, are, not, yeah. are not going to do very well. Or they also compared it with uh, 225 milligrams of effects are titrated up very quickly over the course of one week. And in those studies, four times more patients are dropped out due to nausea in the effects arm than in the, than in the Lexapro arm. Yeah. So that's another sort of dosing issue, wow. but it's okay. a, strategic, a strategic way of doing the dosing to, to end up showing what you want to show in the end. These so, are great. So, these are so helpful. Yeah, these are. It is. Um, if, if we may, I would like to uh, run with that dosing issue line and ask you a little bit about Silenor and Doxepin, and maybe you can also pull out, continue to kind of identify for us the lessons as you go, but I, you've been doing a great job of that. Sure, yeah. And so Silenor, I don't even know that listeners are using it or know about it, but uh, maybe they do. So, um, and this also relates to another sort of part of my saga of publishing the Carlyle Report in some ways. But so Silenor was introduced in 2007, or it was approved by the FDA in 2007. And basically what this is, is doxepin. Doxepin is a very, very old tricyclic antidepressant it's been used as an antidepressant for, for many, many decades, I believe. And um, so the, this company um, created a low, basically very low dose versions of doxepin. Uh, so doxepin comes as its lowest dose as a generic at 10 milligrams. So they created a, a three milligram version and a six milligram version of doxepin. And they slapped on it a new name called Silenor. Uh, they put it through clinical trials showing that it was a good sleeping pill uh, uh, compared to placebo. And then they got FDA approval and they began to market it. And they were able to charge like $214 a month for this medication as opposed to $4 a month at, you know, at Walmart for a generic version of, of doxepin, 10 milligrams. So this is just seemed completely outrageous to me when I read read what was going on. And so, um, but it wasn't until 2011 that I really realized what, what the, um, uh, what, what the, what the tactic here was. And so at that point we published a blog post and we published, we sent sort of a clinical alert to our readers. Uh, and, um, about a, a month after I sent out that clinical alert telling, basically I was just telling readers, look, Stop. Don't prescribe Silenor. Prescribe generic doxepin. It's much cheaper and it's, it works just as well. I got a letter from the company. Samaxon was the name of the company at that point. I don't know who it is now. I got a letter from their general counsel, their attorney, telling me that what I was doing was an inducement to infringe on their patent by uh, encouraging people to prescribe a generic drug in, in instead of their branded drug. And they demanded that I cease providing any advice about doxepin to my readers at all. Hmm. And, uh, and uh, the way that you had mentioned it to me uh, 
uh, which I thought was an interesting spin on it was it sounded like they had kind of insinuatingly asked you, are you inciting people to prescribe off label, which is so ultra deceptive because it's the same medication. Yes. Yeah. They, they were, uh, they were inciting. I, I don't even know what they were trying to argue. Um, <laughs> Truthfully, but I did. I did send what I because I didn't really understand it. I sent the letter around to some friends, some attorneys, and to some um, some other bloggers who were very familiar with pharmaceutical industry, and they all told me that there you have nothing to worry about. There's no way that you can get sued. You know, this this is not libel. Uh, this is uh, uh, communicating. Uh, uh, accurate information to your readers and you can't get sued for communicating accurate information. So how so many said, cease and desist letters, letters have you gotten from pharmaceutical companies? <laughs> not only, only two or three, okay. <laughs> but they really, they really stick out in your mind when you get a letter like that. But I, I, didn't, I didn't end up, I really, what I ended up doing in that case was I just sent out another 10,000 clinical alerts to, to subscribers and I didn't hear back from them again. Similar to the question of how a provider, a resident, a med student can critically appraise literature, also is curious how uh, our patient community and population can also look at medications and appraise them too and compare them as well. Yeah, I think it's very difficult um, because it's easy for consumers and patients to get the wrong idea about our medications and probably the, the 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 most recent example that has really hit the public discourse recently was whether um serotonin really is relevant to depression and right. a lot of people have heard about a recent article uh, arguing that they're showing that there really is no good evidence that serotonin uh low serotonin is related to depression uh, and I think a lot of consumers got the wrong idea that that meant that antidepressants were ineffective, whereas really all that meant is that we are not completely clear on the mechanism of action of these antidepressants that are indeed extremely effective. Which I think a lot of psychiatrists have been honest about this whole time, and, and hopefully uh, more will be. I think many psychiatrists are honest with themselves and the public that like many other fields of medicine, we don't fully understand the mechanisms of our medications. Um, and, and the psychiatrists who, who describe things in the, in the serotonin way, I think truly believe it. It's just uh, maybe in need of a little updating. Yeah, I think you're right. So do you have any advice, Danny, for consumers? Uh, well, I mean, for consumers, um, basically for, for my patients, uh, I think they have to realize that even though we don't know the mechanism of action of medications in psychiatry, it doesn't mean that the meds aren't effective. Just, just as in neurology, uh, I get migraine headaches, uh, I take Imitrex, you know, the first hint of a migraine. Nobody has any idea really how Imitrex works. Nobody has any idea how, how migraine headache works, but just because they, they can't tell me the mechanism, doesn't mean I'm not going to take my Imitrex because I know from experience it's going to help. And that really is what I tell my patients as well, you know, when I'm talking about, you know, psychiatric medications. 
So what was it like, um, kind of like leaving pharma and, uh, going from that side of things as you discovered all of these different, uh, things and, and going, going to, to, but kind of being on the opposite side, did you notice a, a, a difference in, in how you were related to or, or treated or thought about? The, um, generally, you know, I, I began to, uh, get offers to, give grand rounds, um, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of universities wanted to hear the sort of the contrarian um, position, and they wanted to know more about these uh, manipulations and adjustments to, to like to uh, research methodology uh, that companies were using in order to push their products, because I think people suspected that these things were being done, but they really didn't have a sense of the the actual methods. So I, you know, I became. It, this is not something that I would have guessed would have happened, but I became sort of a spokesperson for understanding uh, research methodology and being and, and having the ability to um, just to skeptically point out uh, the aspects of methodology that just didn't that weren't really kosher and that's all the time we have for this edition of let's get psyched today we spoke to danny carlat of the carlat report thank you to our co-host dr tosha yamaguchi and production assistant yasmin dakama thank you dr carlat for joining us uh check out the carlat report the blog the podcast any of carlat's wealth of learning materials if you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write to us at getpsyched on KUCR at gmail.com. If you like this episode, please subscribe and post a review. You can listen to extended versions of our show or past episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, Al Atkins. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Let's get psyched.